Welcome to the Semper Reformato podcast, spreading the word and contending for the faith. Colin, we're going to turn to the book of Ephesians, please. To Ephesians again, chapter chapter 1, in verse 13 and verse 14. And we're going to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit in sealing the believer. The Holy Spirit, that blessed third person of the Trinity, described here as the Holy Spirit of promise, promised by Christ, promised to his disciples, promised to be with them, promised to be a comforter to them, promised that he would convict them of sin and that he would challenge our perception of our own righteousness and that he would bring us new life and that he would apply the saving work of Christ on the cross to the hearts of those who belong to God through sovereign election. So Paul speaks here of the Holy Spirit of promise. And of course he includes the work of the Holy Spirit in this long single sentence of rejoicing over what the Lord has done in saving sinners. In Ephesus, these Gentiles and us also. And he tells us that the Ephesians were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And there's some very strange phrases used that we should take time to explore. It tells us here that after we believe, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And he talks in verse 14 about the earnest of our inheritance. And he talks about the redemption of the purchased possession. Concepts and phrases that would need to be teased out. And we would need to get behind the meaning of them and find out what way they apply to us. But before we do that, I want to ask the question, when does this sealing happen? Now you might think, well, wouldn't it be more logical to tell us what the sealing of the Spirit actually is before you tell us when it happens? Well, possibly. But you see, when it happens, it's going to determine what we believe it to be. So bear with me. And look at verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. I'm going to suggest to you here that this sealing with the Spirit, which we'll find out about in a moment, is an essential part of our personal conversion. In fact, I'm going to suggest that you cannot be saved without this sealing of the Spirit. And Paul includes it here. He includes it without any break or any form of differentiation in the process of conversion that he describes for us in verse 13, that we trusted in Christ, 
that we heard the word of truth, the gospel, that we believed and that we were sealed. The process of conversion of sinners. These Ephesian Christians had done all of those things. They had heard the word of God proclaimed. They had believed not just about Jesus, but in Jesus. In other words, they trusted him. They rested all their hope in him. They were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. I'm going to contend that that is something that happens to the believer at conversion. Now, the reason that I'm emphasizing that is because there are good, sound, gospel-preaching pastors and preachers who believe that this sealing is a separate event. That it is something that occurs afterwards. That it is a spiritual work in the believer whereby they obtain what we might call a second work of grace. Or perhaps a second blessing. Or perhaps come to a realization of assurance in the faith. And I'm anxious to stress that that does not make one a heretic. It was held, it's a view held, by entirely orthodox preachers. I'm going to give you an example. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I believe to be one of the greatest and most biblically faithful gospel ministers of the last century, viewed the sealing of the Spirit as a separate, later, spiritual dealing in the life of the believer. In fact, he taught that it is one that must actually be sought by the believer. In his book of sermons on Ephesians chapter 1, God's ultimate purpose, Lloyd-Jones asks, So we are faced with the question, is the sealing of the Holy Spirit a distinct and separate experience in the Christian life, or is it something that happens inevitably to all who are Christians? So that you cannot be a Christian at all apart from this sealing. And his conclusion, his own answer to that question, was that the Spirit follows, sealing of the Spirit follows or is subsequent to conversion. And he believed that this sealing came sometime after someone believes, where the believer is given a new experience of power to serve God. Now, despite my admiration of Martin Lloyd-Jones, or rather of his ministry, I do very strongly disagree with him on that particular matter. And I'm going to tell you why, and I want you to try and bear with me as much as you can. And the first reason why is because of the Greek text itself. The King James Version here that we have, which... Martin Lloyd-Jones strongly defended, reads after that he believed. That's not a mistranslation. The, Greek, the King James text says, In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. And that's quite correct. And I'll tell you why it's correct. Because when we go to the 
taxus receptus, the received tax upon which the uh, King James Version is translated, upon which it depends. The word after simply isn't there. The King James Version is a translation of the taxus receptus. And part of the process of translation is to place the words into a structured English sentence. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to follow it. The words would be all over the place. It would be like a a word jigsaw. We wouldn't know what we were reading because Greek doesn't have the same sentence structure as English does. So we agree that it's important to have an English translation in the hands of every man and woman. And we agree, I'm sure, that the best example of that at present time is the Bible that we have before us, the King James Version. But the King James Version is not a literal replacement for the TR, the received text. So for after ye believed, the 1550 Textus Receptus reads Kaipistusantes. Now that word, I'm told, and I'm not an expert, but I have, like every pastor, I have done Greek studies 35 or 40 years ago. But I'm told if you, if, I mean, if you just simply look up a, a, a lexicon, you can find that that word is orist. It's past tense. It's a single point in time past. So for after you believed, that's a single point. That's something that's happened. It happened once, only once. And you can see why the King James translators would have included the word after to try and make that apparent to each and every one of us who are reading in English. But that doesn't mean that the sealing happens sometime after conversion. It means that it happened to believers at a time and a place once and once only. Hearing, believing, and sailing here are all in the orist tense. They are all exactly the same. And they didn't happen over periods of time. They all happened at, as a process of conversion. Let me um, quote to you from John Owen. John Owen in his works in volume 10 on page 299. The Oris principle is contemporaneous here with hearing and believing and trusting. Contextually, the threefold praise to the Godhead is in the first two instances due to God's prior action. That's election and redemption. We've already seen that. So to be consistent, says Owen, it should be that way for the third leg. In the least, sealing should not follow believing. So let's try and put it into some kind of an easy-to-understand way. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the good news of your salvation, as a result of hearing him, of hearing that you believed in him, as a result you were stamped with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. So because of the Greek text, we are led to believe that this is a part of our conversion. Not just because of the Greek text, but because of the context of the passage. That 
quote from John Owen has already made that clear. In the passage that we have read from verse 3 down to verse 14, the believer is entirely passive. In election, we are passive. God is active. In adoption, we are passive. God is doing the work. God is active and the believer is simply responding. These things happen to us. They are not something that we do or something that we seek. It is something that God does. He seeks us. He elects us. He predestinates us. He brings us into his family. When, he, when Paul talks here about the Lord Jesus, it is Jesus who is active in our redemption, in obtaining our forgiveness at the cross for us, in granting us the wisdom and the prudence to trust him who allocates to us an inheritance. All of that is the work of Christ, not something that we do, but something that he has done for us. Why then? When Paul turns to the work of the Holy Spirit, why would he insist that this sealing is something that we must seek after as a separate experience? Or that the Ephesian believers must speak after, seek after, as Lloyd-Jones seemed to believe? It is contrary to the whole overall purpose of this passage which is to praise God for what he has done, his saving work for us. So the Greek text would tend to make us think that the sailing of the Spirit occurs as part of the process of conversion. And we believe that because of the context of the passage, but we also believe it because of Paul's theology. Paul never teaches anywhere that there are two separate types of Christian, does he? You know, ordinary Christians like us and super-Christians who are spirit-filled and spirit-sealed. In fact, if you cast your mind back just a little bit in the passage, we have already learned that God's ultimate purpose is to unite us, both now and in eternity in Christ. So the gift of the Holy Spirit here is always, in Paul's theology, a unifying factor, not a cause of division or separation between Christian believers. Because of the very nature of the seal itself, the sealing of the Spirit here is with the Holy Spirit. We're not sealed by the Spirit, we are sealed with the Spirit. And that's really important. That's a very important distinction. It is the indwelling presence of God himself within us that is the earnest of our inheritance. Having the Holy Spirit within us means that we have a deposit of heaven means that we have a down payment that guarantees that one day we will be with the Lord Jesus forever and ever. And this sealing of the Spirit is linked by Paul to the certainty of God's promises made for us. Because the Holy Spirit has indwelt us. Every believer is 
the temple of the Holy Spirit, having the earnest of our inheritance. So, because of those four facts, because of the nature of the Greek text, because of the overall context of the passage, because of an understanding of Paul's theology, and because of the nature of the seal itself being with the Holy Spirit, being the Holy Spirit himself is the seal indwelling us rather than something that he does to us, I beg with great respect, I beg to differ from Martin Lloyd-Jones. I go again, I go again, I go so far as to say that one cannot be a Christian without this sealing of the Holy Spirit. We're brought into God's kingdom and we are forgiven of all of our sins and the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us and gives us a new life and regenerates us and gives a new heart to us. Text and the context are clear. And to me, the meaning seems to be clear. God has blessed us, says Paul, in the past tense, at conversion, with every spiritual blessing. And that includes this sealing of the Spirit. And here's why this is so important that we understand this. Because this sealing of the Spirit is a down payment the earnest of our inheritance. Not a term we would use very often. It's a deposit. The fact that we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us is a deposit of heaven, a deposit of what we have to come, a deposit of what is ahead of us, and it's given to every single believer. The Greek used here is the well-known noun arabon, um, one lexicon points out that it means money in which uh, money which in purchases is given as a pledge or a down payment that the full account, the full amount, will subsequently be paid. It's a security deposit. It's a guarantee of the fulfilment of God's promise. God gives His Holy Spirit as a guarantee that His promise will be fulfilled. And that's why I want you to be absolutely sure that this work of the Holy Spirit occurs to you when you are converted. Because when you are converted, you are his. You're sealed. You're given that promise. You have the earnest of the inheritance. You have the down payment of heaven because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and you do not have to wait for that. It's not something that will happen to you days or weeks or years after your conversion. It is something that is common to every single Christian believer. What will this sealing of the Spirit do for us? What will be its effect on our lives? Let's go a step further. If you're a believer, you've been sealed. So what does it mean to me? Well, it means, first of all, that I'm going to be protected by God. It's a mark of our security. 
Especially it means to be protected from anything that's trying to tamper with what is behind the scene. Let's take a wee break for a moment. Let you think. Whenever I was growing up in our house, we, we had a gas meter. Anybody remember, does anybody remember what a shilling is? Well, my mummy used to send me round to the bus stop. And I'd wait for the bus. And the bus would come and I would jump onto the bus. And those days buses had conductors. And they stood at the back of the bus. Most of you won't remember that. They stood at the back of the bus and I would jump onto the bus and I would have half a crown. Do you know what that is? Two and six. It's worth about, oh, I don't know. I don't know what it's worth, not very much. I'd jump onto the bus and I would say to the man in the bus, have you any single shillings for the gas meter? And the bus man would give me two single shillings and a sixpence. Either that, he would just chase me. And eventually I'd find a bus man would go back round home and my mother would put a single shilling into the gas and that would do for another wee while. But the gas couldn't be tampered with because on the gas meter was a seal. And it was put there by the council. The man came round and he put this piece of metal on the gas meter and he sealed it with a seal. He made a mark in it with a special seal. And if you tried to tamper with the gas meter, if you tried to get free gas or get the shillings back out of the gas meter, you would break the seal. So what was behind the seal was protected until the man came to get his money. God has protected us. For I know whom I have believed. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. We know that we have this protection because the Holy Spirit has sealed us until the day when we get our inheritance. It's to be protected. It's to be owned. Song of Solomon, verse chapter 8 and verse 6 Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. There's a seal. We belong to the Lord. By one spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. We are owned by God. We are his and Not only are we protected and owned, but I propose also that we are authenticated by the seal of the Holy Spirit. It's a sign of authenticity. Just when a certificate is issued, if you have a degree certificate from a university, you'll often see that there's a seal set into it. It's maybe a gold stamp that's put onto the the degree certificate and it'll have an embossing on it. It'll be embossed with the seal of the university and it's to say that it's authentic, that it can't be replicated or fraudulently uh, reproduced. It's authentic. And the Christian is sealed by the Holy Spirit in every one of these respects. At conversion, 
The Holy Spirit seals us so that we are under the protection of God, so that we are owned by Christ, who has bought us with his own precious blood, and so that we are authenticated as real, knowing that the Holy Spirit dwelling within us is granting us assurance. Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. Those who are God's children are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Right, time is gone. What's the result of this sealing? Ultimately, we've seen when it happens. We've seen the effect that it will have on our lives as Christians. And I want to look at verse 14, just the end of it. Because it is until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. Down payment has been made. You have the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, indwelling you. And that down payment will one day lead to the transaction being completed. The believer will be in heaven. He will claim our inheritance. Now, something we have to look at. If you turn back to verse 7 in the same passage, you'll see that we are taught there by Paul that we have redemption through his blood. Our redemption was bought at Calvary. We are bought back out of slavery. We looked at that earlier. We already have been redeemed. And yet, we are going to be redeemed. Do you see that? There is this theme that runs right throughout the New Testament. Now, but not yet. Done. Done, but to be done. And let me illustrate it for you. The kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here. We are already citizens of the kingdom of God, and yet at the same time, The kingdom of God is not yet. It is still to come. It is still to be fully realized. We are saved by God's grace. We are saved by Christ's work at the cross. We are fully and completely saved. And yet we are being saved. And one day we will be saved. We have every blessing in Christ. Every blessing. And yet, we do not know the blessedness of heaven. We are redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. But we look forward to our redemption, which draweth nigh. The redemption of the purchased possession. We are already bought, we are already purchased at the cross. But one day that will be fully realized. There's always this eschatological element to our Christian experience, isn't there? We are already fully in Christ. And yet one day 
we shall be in him completely. We are already united in Christ. One day, around the throne of grace, we shall be united in Christ. The now and the not yet runs right throughout the New Testament and through New Testament theology. And Paul simply reiterates it here. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a guarantee to every single believer. And one day there will be a day of the redemption of the purchased possession. That the mortgage will be paid as it were. That the down payment will be fulfilled. And we will be with him forever and ever. But what is that inheritance? What is this inheritance that we have been purchased for? It is, of course, a mansion in heaven. It is, of course, eternal life. It is a new heaven and a new earth. All of those things. And yet our primary inheritance is Christ himself. It is to live eternally onto the praise of his glory. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, Please help to make it better known by opening the podcast app on your phone or mobile device. Then, search for The Semper Reformata Podcast. Subscribe and give it a 5-star rating. See you next time.